had an out-of-town, unexpected trip that I needed to make Thursday and Friday. No crisis, thankfully, um, but I have failed to give you your next set of notes for next week, for the last week. So uh, I'll probably have them electronically sent to your office, and they can either send them to you or post them or just show up. There really isn't much preview, although preview would be ideal. So I will do what I can to get them to the church office. Um, yeah. So Nick would be away through Sunday. Okay. So I'll probably then he can deal with that Monday or Tuesday. Um, nothing else to do when he gets back, right? Give us something to do. He might be bored when he gets back. Um, the last week, what we'll do then for that last week is I have a list of various kinds of common problem areas that we'll just talk about those common problem areas, give you some basic scripture, basic perspectives. So hopefully by the end of today, you'll have a, a basic working approach, and then next week we'll just fill in some more uh, truths and uh, ways to think about things like anger, depression, anxiety, those kinds of topics that are pretty common among all of us. So that will be the plan for next week. I want to apologize for an uh, overly long review last time. I had engaged my time well. My plan for this morning is I, I will do a, a briefer review of just the last step we were at and finish it finish what's, uh, what's called Session 4, Step 3, and then see what comments you have on Welch's side-by-side, and then go into some application and how we do this in a daily way, that, and that would be Session 5. So that's our plan for this morning. Let me ask our God to direct our steps as we think about how to love His people well. We come to you, Father, and we recognize that we are in great need of help. We um, sometimes don't care enough about people, but then even when we do, we freeze up. We don't know what to say or do. And when a problem hits us, coming from a brother or sister, a friend, we are sometimes at a loss. So I, I pray you'd help us today to be able to, to understand how to, to bring uh, truth into the daily activities, the daily discussions. Guide our discussion today. Guide our thinking. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we thought about this, uh, understand, uh, enter the person's world, understand the struggles, the need, felt need, and real needs, as we think biblically about the real needs. We now need to bring Christ to the person. And as we talked last time, we had some goals for what that looks like. We want to help the person see those sins, repent, and follow a new lifestyle, new patterns. We do this by speaking God's word, and we help the person apply and live that out. In that sense, we become a coach in an ongoing way. We talked about the scripture itself. We looked at some verses there, particularly Psalm 19. 
won't review that. And then we talked about how do you choose a passage based on the summary question. Now, the summary question was this. How and why is this person? This is worth trying to memorize, actually. And if you were in an academic setting, you would definitely want to have this memorized. Hint, 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 as I tell students. How and why is this person responding to this situation in which God has placed him? And what heart and behavior changes are biblically indicated? And so that, that is the question that will really guide us into the selection of Scripture. Now, so we talked about choosing the passage and then the suggested steps that are, that are listed for you there. Um, again, the, the, the kind of, of passage becomes important. But don't fret. You probably will never feel like you have the perfect verse for the situation. And uh, my encouragement to folks like you, most of you uh, mature in your faith, is don't oversweat what passage you might share with someone, especially in the first time you might share something. You're getting to know this person a little bit. Um, the passage you pick, in my guess, probably is a pretty good passage. It's something that means something to you. And don't worry about it. Just share something from the scriptures that you think will be relevant. You can always fine-tune that next time. I find sometimes I put myself, and I know others put themselves under this pressure. What is the best verse? Is, is there one best verse? I, I don't think so. The scripture is so rich. And as you grow in your reading of the scripture, as you grow in your hearing of God's word as it's preached and taught, as you have received counsel from one another, as you read good books on ministry to people, your toolbox will increase, you'll, you'll have more tools to use. It's any encouragement, this analogy has, has given to me and it's helped me um, over the years and, and the analogy would be this, that I, and I'm not a fix-it guy, so this illustration doesn't really apply to a guy like me. But uh, if I was a fix-it, basic fix-it guy, and I had probably 10 to 15 tools, a couple of wrenches, a couple of screwdrivers, a hammer, a saw, I could probably do 80% of the home repair work with just some basic tools. Now, the master craftsman, right? Like you're dealing with these intricate problems that you've never seen before. Okay, maybe you need a different tool. But for most of the kind of lay, one anothering, friendship, counseling, small group leadership, you, you, you get 10 to 15 passages really working in your life, Many of some of which we've talked about here, and uh, make sure you, you'll have that next week as well. Uh, ah, it's in your appendix, sorry. Those, those kinds of verses with a list of verses, those kinds of passages, you get some of them working well. You, you get uh, one of the last Sunday sermons, the, the key truth working a little bit in your own heart. You'll, you'll do real fine with, with people. So I want to encourage you that way. All right. And then we gave a whole bunch of examples different individuals. And these were not in your notes, as I've noted here. 
and uh, these are the kinds of passages. So there's five of twelve or or fifteen or twenty that are just great texts that might help a person. And then we walk through what this look, what looks like with one particular kind of situation, rejection, which uh, includes all sorts of kinds of interpersonal problems going on. I, of course, think about the romantic, the dating, the uh, more severe when there's a marriage, a divorce, or uh, engagement breakups, things like that. But I also think of the way I've been slighted this week by someone in my church congregation. I said hi, they would say hi back to me or something like that. Okay, now hopefully you're not going to be that, that petty. Some people don't say hi back to you, not because they hate you, but because of 13 things going on in their mind. And, uh, but, but nevertheless, even among our friendships, sometimes we feel the same reality is I feel like I've been abandoned. And so we have both these passages. And I know I didn't hit the John 16 32, very hard, but um, did I even comment on that one? I'm not sure I got that far. I think that was my stopping point there. It's an interesting passage because there our Lord Jesus is with the, um, the 11 at this point. Judas has already left. And he refers to the prophecy... Zechariah about striking the sheep, the shepherd and the sheep scatter. So Jesus says this is about to become true. Time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. And so that's the scene reality parallel to Psalm 27.10 though my father and mother forsake me. Here is you all, my closest friends, friends will leave me. Uh, I kind of make up a verb here just to make my point. You're, you're going to alone me. You're going to alone me. But then you look at the accompanying reality. The text ends, for my father is with me. And right in the middle is a summary statement of his his status, his well-being. You will leave me alone. You will alone me, but you aloning me does not produce an alone state. Now, the only possible way that Jesus can say, I am not alone, is if the presence of someone else trumps the aloning the rejection of my closest friends that I look at, look at and see. And that means, like we said with Psalm 27.10, that we want to help the person increase their understanding of what is this unseen reality all about. Because if friends... Uh, abandon me, but I am not, we'll get to the therefore, not abandoned, not alone. It can only be because the presence of the Father is more important to me than the presence of my friends. Does that make sense? 
So with this understanding, even though the seen reality is happening to Jesus, his QED, his conclusion, his final verdict is, I am not alone. I am not abandoned. So, maybe some of you in this room, but all of us know dear friends, brothers and sisters, who are divorced. Thankfully, divorce is not an identity. Divorce is a circumstance. It's a hardship. Identity is son or daughter of God. Or not son or daughter of God, unbeliever. Identity here is I am uh, with the Father, the Father is with me. That's the core identity, despite the circumstance. Single parenting is not an identity. Single parenting is a circumstance, a hard one, as some of you may be who are single parents here, or you have dear friends. I grew up in, in the home of a single mom. My mom was, uh, my dad died when I was a baby. I know life was very, very hard for her. But when she came to know the Lord, it, it, it changed things in her life. And that was during my teenage years when that happened. And that's when I got saved, too. So uh, The house looked a little better, okay? That's when I was saved in my senior year, and the Lord worked in my mom's life around that time as well. So there's a way to think about this. And uh, again, the value of a written tool, of drawing out a little diagram, not just the tree model that we've worked with, but in this case, even a little chart like that. Now let me pause for questions you have on that, and then we'll finish the material from session four. And we'll talk a little bit about the Welch book. Some questions on this thus far? Is it please? Is it a struggle to try to help someone that's been through a divorce to change that identity from, you know, because you are one and then yeah. to God? Yes, I think a uh, great question. Uh, the struggle of shifting identity when you've been through a divorce. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. And, and, and let me back up. This is why we want to be careful that we start applying this truth now while we are married. Because actually, even now, my fundamental identity is not that I'm married. And, and the more I build my identity on my wife or my relationship to my wife, the harder it will be if in God's providence the marriage ends by her death, by, by divorce, which is always someone is unbiblical when there's a divorce. We know that. It's never God's intention. And so, uh, However marriage might end, the more I'm soaking my identity now, and letting go of the ownership of my wife or my children. Same with the loss of a child. Same with the pregnancy loss. The more you invest in that person, spouse, whomever, the harder it will be. But again, once that divorce or whatever separation or uh, widow status occurs then it is, it is difficult, especially if there's been many years of, of marriage. 
And then the culture, of course, is going to reinforce those identity statements of you're single, you're divorced. In Christ, there is no longer male or female, right? Jew or Gentile, slave or, or master. Paul's not stupid, okay? He's not... Uh, he understands the birds and the bees, okay? He understands there's gender differences between males and females. He certainly understands there's great ethnic differences like Jew and Gentile, right? And uh, he certainly understands that there are economic realities of masters and slaves. But for Paul, those things are not determinative. Those things are not central. Uh, being God's son and daughter is what's central now for Paul. And, and to phrase it the way um, Tim Keller and others have phrased it, the gospel relativizes all other identities so that those identities, while, while important and while things that God needs to, uh, God, God wants us to learn to love our husband or wife or if we're a, a slave, how to... Uh, relate to a master, or if you're a master or an employer, maybe it's the parallel, how to treat that person and how gender should work together. While those things are important, uh, the ultimate identity is going to be uh, being a son or daughter, and so how does a son or daughter of God act towards a husband? Or if a husband is removed from your life, how does a son or daughter act toward other people? So that becomes the central truth there. Can I also recommend divorce care? There, this is, there, there's a new version of divorce care that's come out in the last couple of years. Uh, the first version I wasn't very comfortable with, but it's been radically overhauled in the new version. So, again, the last couple of years. Uh, church initiative right in town up in Wake Forest there. Up in, where am I? Point in the right direction. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, it's, 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 a, it's a good program. I also found that the single and parenting materials that they produce is good too. All about being a single parent, single and parenting. And they're in the process of revising their grief share materials as well. They've, matter, they've made a radical shift. I call it radical, they might not, but a major shift, a significant shift towards a more Christ-centered biblical approach to these three areas, um, or divorce care and grief share. And then single and parenting is a brand new curriculum that came out a couple years ago now, I guess. Okay, enough commercials for church initiative. I have one comment. I know you deal with a physician. I've dealt with sick people all the time. But, I mean, everybody's a certain degree of sick, I want to minimize the hardships that are going on here. Yeah. No, I yeah. understand that. But I'm just saying that when we counsel people, I, I, I would do everything we could, it seems to me, to maintain the relationship, you know, and find out what the pathology is and what, 
how can we make it more Christ-centered and, and therefore a better relationship? I mean, I understand you're a counselor. You have to deal with divorce. You have to deal with single parents generally from divorce, not from war or disease. And so it's such a pathology, divorce, and it's unscriptural. And, and so as a counselor, it seems to me that one of our major goals is to make marriage stronger. Sure, yeah. And not go on about, you know, what's the best form of relationship. Not that we don't have... Yeah. Well, let, let me try to speak to the bigger issue on that. Um, for me as a counselor, and I think most of us here, most of your ministry is going to be helping marriages. But we will hit those occasions. And I was just answering the question here as to about the person who's already divorced. Right. But sure, we need to. We can say a lot about marriage counseling, which I won't have time to get in today. Let me, let me get into what we need to cover for this morning. And we'll have some time for the Welch book and then get into the next section here. Helping the person establish and implement a new action plan. Okay, so at this point, we've come up with a key verse or passage that we've actually shared with the person. We've tried to engage them. We've had them look at the text, remember the steps, had them look, let their eyes look at that. Um, what is that saying to you? What are your thoughts on this? And they've come to the place where they say, I need to deal with this fear of people that I see that I have here. And let's take the passage in Psalm 2710 uh, and or John 1632. Maybe the first time I just Psalm 2710. Maybe I meet with them again and I'll bring John 1632. But it's getting clear that I'm struggling with the way so-and-so looks at me, how people in general or so-and-so specifically is looking at me. So now, where do we go from here? Well, I like to use the six-box chart. Now, I've already been thinking this way in my own preparation in my notes. I, at this point, would draw, and here I might just draw the tree. So to be able to kind of shift back between the two uh, versions of this truth, the tree and the six-box, the six-box might be easier for you to write things down on, but I might then draw the tree or go ahead and draw the boxes either way. But now I want to help the person see what I'm seeing. I want to make sure I bring them into my mindset. And we want to think then very concretely. Here's what I think has been going on. This is the hardships you're facing. So-and-so apparently has actually abandoned you. Or at least you perceive that a lot of people are against you. And I believe you. I, you know. It's paranoia, it's another discussion. But here, at least this is something that I see. Uh, this is the hardship. And, and here is the way you've tended to respond. And it's a way of response that you don't like, that God doesn't like, and that I want to be able to help you think through. So I'm, I'm, I'm working then this, this whole sheet and then these responses of fear and where they're coming from and so what the fear of people looks like is I avoid people so that's what's going over here or I, I lash out or I become depressed and what's really going on then is that that I have this 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 fear this fear of people FOP fear of people 
which is ultimately a fear of people more than God. And so a fear of God is what we're wanting to see develop there. And so what God does is he comes to us in his word, and this is box four. The cross would be the same as the box four, the bottom box. And here I bring that truth, and I bring the truth. So uh, I, your friend, okay, and, and we, your church, are embodying this and delivering this and modeling this and encouraging you in this and helping you, uh, even with some of the practicalities of all this, in order to begin to see the shift that's going to move us from the left to the right progressively. Out of this will come new responses of engaging people. And so how can you engage people instead of avoid people? How can you find identity? This I put identity over here. How can you find that though this person has forsaken you, the Lord, 2710, Psalm 2710b, will receive you. And even though your friends have alone you, how is it that the... Father being with you gives you this new identity of I am not alone, though I have been truly abandoned or sinned against in some way. And from that identity, how do I engage the person? How do I love the person? How do I pray for the person? How do I serve the person? So, so John, uh, who's been abandoned by his wife... Um, what would that look like to love her and serve her in this way? Or these friends in my world have constantly seemed to, they don't care about me. How, how from a position of understanding that the ultimate care we get is from God, how can you now learn to care for those other people? And, and maybe it's merely not lashing out. How can you just learn, you know, the first fruit might be just hold your tongue and learn to pray, not lash out, not attack, or, or counterattack if you feel like you're being attacked. So what's that going to look like in concrete steps? I jumped the gun a little bit. Instill and reinforce the person growing grass with his biblical identity in Christ. It's implications for growth and God's provisions of grace. So we're back to, on this one, Psalm 27, 10b, right? The Lord will receive me. Uh, the Father is with me. Here, practically, uh, along with maybe giving some advice about how to handle the situation, I like to help the person. Make, I want to make sure the person is having some kind of ongoing devotional life and Bible reading I might assign Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, which, as many of you know, would be a passage that is rich and chock full of identity of what God and Jesus has done for this person. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, 
is one continual sentence in the Greek New Testament of 202 words. Tell me, school teachers, including homeschool teachers, would you ever allow anything like that to pass your red pen? I would not. But Paul is so excited, he just explodes with praise. Verse 3 through 14, this long celebration of what God and Jesus has done. I alluded earlier this morning to the Galatians 3 when I talked about identity. Galatians chapter 3, 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, sons and daughters, children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. And Paul takes three categories that are common in his day, three social, socially divisive categories that tended to divide people and divide the church. Jew, Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those kinds of passages... I mentioned the person, and I forget what pseudonym I used, but the fearful person. I mentioned the Isaiah 41 passage. So you have Isaiah 41, and the text that I landed on, and the key text I'd share with a person is, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But verse 10 begins with the word so, and it takes us back two verses above to this wonderful context. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, that identity there. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. And so here's what God says. Now that's Isaiah 41, 8 through 10 is box 4. With the understanding that verses 8 and 9, this whole identity there, feeds the call then to not fear, to not be dismayed. For I am your God, I will strengthen you. So there's this fruit and root thing going right there in verse 10. But it's all built upon the truths of verses 8 and 9 in that context there. So I want to make sure the person understands what it means to belong to Jesus and God's provisions of grace. And let me mention, I think I've said this before, that when you think of God's provisions of grace, I like to think of a twofold category, forgiving grace and the enabling grace. And I just kind of train my mind to try to think along those contours in, in the Bible. And, and so much of what God... the uh, the, the truths of who we are in Christ, the indicatives, if you will, they're called the, uh, the sentences of truth, what God has done for us, have to do with our status of being forgiven and the status of being empowered by God. And so I want the person to, to get a growing sense 
that God is with them, that God has already forgiven and will forgive even now as we go to him afresh and ask him to forgive. All right, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just will continue to forgive us. I think there's a present sense uh, going on there. And, and then also that he will be with us and help us. So we go to the throne of grace. Here's another text for you. Hebrews 4.16. We go to the throne of grace that we might receive two things. Um, mercy. Forgiving grace. And grace to help us in our time of need. That enabling grace or the empowering grace. Or, or let's take a person who's suffering. Sustaining grace. Right? So, so we're helping them see the big picture. We're helping them understand the identity that we have. And then we want to determine some concrete steps of needed changes. What action steps need to be taken? Now, you're talking to a person about a situation that right now their son or daughter isn't in the room with you. Or the husband or wife or the friend who feels who they feel is rejecting them. So right now you just want to give what would you say, what might you say practically in this situation? You might suggest there's some verses on speech. Proverbs chapter ten and twelve are the two passages in the book of Proverbs that have the most concentrated truths about the tongue. Proverbs ten Proverbs 12. If you just read those on your own this week, you'll find there's you know, at least a half dozen things about speech in each of those two chapters. So that might be a place to help the person begin to, to talk differently to the other person that maybe they're having a conflict with. Maybe there are some put-off and put-on changes having to do with, it, with morality issues. Someone who struggles with pornography um, or other lustful thinking some key passages of scripture for them to focus on. And then what are the action steps? And that might include the practical action steps of putting a filters, filter on the computers or on the cell phones, ones that you can't break, ones that your spouse has a password, those kinds of protective things. Or reporting software, bringing accountability in to the person's life. where there's various kinds of anger displays the person struggles with. What does it look like to to hold your tongue? What does it look like to summon to your mind in the midst of a pressured situation? Uh, be quick to hear. Uh, slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Lord, help me right now. Slow to speak, slow to become angry. Lord, help me. Um, so, key truths, key memory aids at that point. A phone call that needs to be made. An action step that needs to be taken. What do I need to start doing that I haven't been doing? What do I need to stop doing that I have been doing? The use of growth assignments. Homework, okay? 
Will, will, well, let me, let me address it now, because that was a question that came up, um, I think, a, a while ago, a week or two ago. Let me address it now. How do you do this with a friend? I mean, it's one thing to be in a formal setting where there's some expectation, almost like you go to a, a, a doctor, you expect that they probably will give you some kind of prescription or action step to take, or therapy, or at least a test some diagnostic testing still needs to be done or something like that. You know, and I, in a more pastoral setting, in a formal context, there's an expectation. You come to me, I'm going to give you something to do with your work on. What do you do with a friend? Uh, here's where a bit of a testimony comes in. You're talking to a friend about a problem area. And you can say, you know, there, I, I know there's a really good book that's been someone recommended to me that might help you. There's a really good booklet. Now, if you've had a similar situation, you can say, here's a booklet, here's an article that have helped me. Or, here's some passages of scripture. Now, you might not be able to pull them out of the top of your head right on the spot. That's okay. Hey, let, let me think about this today. and uh, Let me get back to you. I'm going to send you by email just a couple passages to think about there. So, what are the growth assignments that are, are, are needed for this person? Categories of to think about would be scripture verses to memorize, maybe a couple verses. Scripture passages to passages now to read, reflect on. Articles, books, booklets, that kind of thing. Talking to someone else might be an assignment. You need to go talk with so and so. In some cases, you feel like, wow, this is a little bit over my head. Why don't you and I go talk with one of our pastors or our small group leader or just another mature Christian in the body of Christ? I know some of the ladies in this room have done counseling and uh, um, Pastor Tom has connected you to people. So maybe you've become a bit of a resource person for others here in the room within the church. So th- those kinds of, of categories. And also always, in my approach, I think you all would agree with this, to make sure they're connecting to small groups and church involvement and church attendance. If the person's not been coming to church for a while, you want to encourage them to kind of step that up. And you know, why don't you listen to the sermon online from last week? It was really helpful, that kind of thing. Number five, consider ways to mobilize other people. I am persuaded, having done uh, pastoral ministry, that I am never the only. Not, I'm, I'm never the only answer to someone's problems. And you say, "Oh, of course not. It's God and His Word." Yes, that's true. That's actually not what I'm talking about. I am never the only human person. Answer. The, the, the Christian life is never designed to be solo, but it's not never designed just to be you and your pastor or you and your counselor. And so how can I, as a friend of yours, somehow mobilize other people to be involved? What that might look like is, as I've already said, encouraging them to talk to someone else. What it might look like would be, I would really love if you're comfortable with this, to bring in uh, your small group leader to help. Or 
tell me another mature man or woman, same gender I'm, I'm here, uh, in the church that's a friend of yours. And would it be possible for that person to come to just at least one of our meetings, one of our sessions, so that he or she can begin to get a feel to what the struggle is? Um, we, we can, we don't have to share everything. I could even hold back some of our confidential discussions here. Let me just begin to let that person in to your world a little bit. Because we need one another. And I'll, I'll hit that this morning after we talk about the Welsh. <clears throat> Offer to go with the person and talk with your pastor. And this would be the situation where um, I feel like it's a little bit over your head. Now, I don't know how this will work in your particular congregation setting. Um, this is kind of assumed in our church, though I don't know how explicit we've been. And that is that when someone shares a situation with me, let's pretend for a moment I'm not an elder in my church, I'm just another member. Um, someone shares a situation with me that is pretty serious. I, I believe a member should say to that other member, you need to go talk with one of our pastors. This is pretty serious stuff. And I would love to go with you. But if you don't go, I might have to share this. I hope you don't have to do that often. Um, and that's kind of discussion beyond our, our discussion for today, because that's going to be more how the pastors in the church want you to handle this. But in, if, I, I never want to put myself as a church member in a position where I'm gagged, where I can say nothing to anyone else. And here I would just encourage you, when that person comes to you and says, can I share something with you, but only if you promise to not share it with anyone else? I hope that you'll say, I will do all that I can to protect our confidentiality here. But I cannot guarantee that I will never share something. You tell me you're about to kill someone or kill yourself. I can't. Now, there's a pro and a con here, right? We all know the con. A person might be less apt to share something with you. The pro is that you're not left in that position of holding information that you really need to be able to share with others. I'm not even talking about legal, criminal actions, child abuse. You know that every citizen in the state of North Carolina is a mandated reporter of child abuse. It's not just medical professionals or counselors. Every citizen is that. Does the state prosecute? Probably not. You're not going to lose your license. You're not going to lose your citizenship, maybe. But I only want to tell you what, I, I'm not going to be a prophet on that one there. The, the point being that we need to make sure, particularly when we talk about suicidality, uh, cases where there's serious marital problems, domestic violence, those kinds of things. We have to be able to say, I love you too much. And, and I've, I've had to do that. I've had to report suicide situations. One lady who, yeah, she ended up taking her life action. And we did a lot to try to help that, stop that from happening. But yeah, I called the police. 
Please show up the house. Knock on the door. How are you doing? I'm fine. They leave. I mean, they, the police aren't going to do a suicide watch. They're not going to, they're not going to uh, shadow this person 24-7 or something like that. So that's where the church and the friends come in. But when I did that, of course, this lady was very angry at me. And I just said, I, 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 I'm sorry that you feel this way. I'm not going to apologize for my action. I love you too much. And I know that's hard for you to get right now. Why? How you can love someone and call the police on them. So my point here is there may become those situations. Now, if you're doing any kind of church counseling that is you've been designated, the pastoral staff has asked you to do some church counseling, you want to have that conversation with the pastors. The rest of us here... I'm just giving you some basic counsel as members. Just just be a little careful about making that um, agreement that I'll never share something with someone. I just want to be careful. You're, you're not a Roman Catholic priest, and uh, and I'm not a Roman Catholic priest either. I'm under the state laws, in my opinion, and, and my uh, formal counseling agreement includes the freedom to talk with our lead pastor, and that's before I have any formal counsel. With, with a person, they're going to sign that agreement that I'm going to have the right, and I rarely have to, and I haven't have to. So that's that's the way church-based counseling, I think, should work, and I suspect it would work here as well. You see that problem with the psychiatrists that deal with these deranged people, and they give them their fantasies about how they're going to kill a bunch of people, and they don't. They just uh, come back the next week, you know, and there's more counseling. I mean, you know, at some point, it's pure dangerous to society. And, yeah. and they need to recognize that confidentiality, yeah. In the state law in New Jersey, a physician treats a gunshot wound, he has to report it to the authorities. Gunshot wounds are not accidents. Sure, sure. So, I mean, sure. we have responsibility as citizens because if somebody is, we counsel them and they So true love will not grant absolute confidentiality in the in our church-based ministries here. All right. Um, other than the uh, let's let's talk about Welsh a little bit. Now, here's the way we're going to have to do this. Here, I'm going to say chapter seven, a comment or question. I may limit it to just one or two. Chapter eight, comment or questions. I need to move more quickly this time than last time. So sorry, I forgot to change the slide to make it seven through fourteen. And then your last Welch reading will be for uh, this week. We'll assign you to read just to the end of the book. So anything on chapter 7 that struck you? If you've not been reading, you're okay. We love you. Listen, okay? Maybe you pick up a, a tidbit or two along the way. Anything on chapter 7 strike you? whole work of the Holy Spirit, sometimes called the neglected member of the Trinity. Uh, I like page 70 when he said that 
godly wisdom resides fully in Jesus, but it's in the public domain. <laughs> I like that too. Yep. Yep. We have full access to that. It's, uh, here's, a, here's a great... Uh, here's how Colossians... Colossians 2 puts it. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 is it? Let me get there. So in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been given fullness. So if if all the fullness of the deity that's symbolized by A, I think this is going I think it's called the transitive property in math. So who's the math person's in the room? Is that what it's called? Okay, if A equals B and B equals C, then what? Yeah, C equals A, or A equals C. So this is sort of a, a, a parallel to this. If all the fullness of deity is in Christ, and you are in Christ, you have all the fullness of deity at your disposal. And it's the Spirit of God. I could really have fun with this thing. It's the Spirit of God who is the the mediator, the spirit here. Yeah, people come talk to me later and correct me. Yeah, I mean, equal signs are messing everyone up on that. But, but you see the point, and that's what the Colossians. That's that's why Paul is so big with the Colossians on on Christ, because they're thinking they need all these other things, and Paul's saying you don't need all these other things. You have it all. You've got the fullness of God. Well, how did you get the fullness of God? Because Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, chapter 1. So it's a, it's a beautiful picture here. Okay. Go ahead. Yes. Um, the one thing I was thinking of was the person. I'm not sure where he is right now, but I know he says that the... That the uh, the spirit wars against the flesh, and the flesh wars against the spirit. And I was just thinking about your six box version, uh, where you have bad roots, mm. is the flesh, and you have good roots, which is the spirit. And so, so basically, uh, those two are at war. And the and the nice the, the nice thing for us to remember is is that is that we're never fighting any of these battles by ourselves. But that we have in us the Spirit of God that is that is fighting the war against the flesh. Yeah, very nice. And, you know what you have there, and I appreciate you referred to that passage. I can't read my small writing here, folks. I'm putting the two Galatian passages, 19 through 21. But what you have is that what we might call that civil war going on inside of the flesh versus the spirit. And what you're noting there, it's really interesting. Both of them are equal combatants. They're both active. It's not just merely I'm kind of floating along in my life and this flesh keeps going after me. It's the Spirit of God is actively trying to 
to put to death the remaining sin in your heart. So Paul Tripp puts it this way in his book, Instruments of Redeemer's Hands. He calls the spirit at this point the warrior spirit. The spirit who's fighting against our remaining sin on our behalf. And of course we cooperate as we put on um, Christ increasingly. Chapter 7. Okay, chapter 8. Let's get practical now. Greet. get a biblical feel for this? Have you, have you ever just paused to read the last chapter in Romans? Romans 16? There are, I think I'm right on that, there are about 20 names that Paul is greeting or tells the readers greet, greet one another, I greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. It's a beautiful picture. Not only does he name them, but he often gets little comments about those, those people. And, and maybe that's hi. How are you? But I, you know, hi. How are you doing today? If I say how are you, you, you don't think I'm really asking anything, right? I guess that's a greeting. But uh, if I say uh, hi, uh, how are you doing today? Now you still might say fine, but but I've said a little different than just a normal North Carolina or American greeting. Are you? How things going for you today? Hey, good to see you today. <clears throat> you're, you're expressing some kind of care. You're, you're moving towards the person. And of course, he talks about the particular value of this, of looking for people who seem a bit alone. This is a very practical thing. He hit this in his talk when, at the conference in Virginia Beach uh, last month. He spoke on this very topic. And he talked about just the value of um, when the service ends, just looking for someone who's maybe standing around and isn't connecting with anyone. I know I have bypassed friends on a Sunday morning. And I, hope they, I hope they know that I'm not really not caring about you. I'm going towards that more lonely person. And hopefully I'll catch up with my friend during the week or something like that. Um, Yes. That's something I read about having the eyes of Jesus. You know, you look at the person he addresses this as this downtrodden, who's depressed, who's hurting. And, and frequently they're like wounded animals. You see the same that come in late and they get they want to go home or they're somehow trying to grab onto a a post of spiritual resource and they just come to church just for that purpose. And, and they're not going to you know, jump up and shake your hand and say, I'm sure you're that person. They're the person who's, well, you know what else to do, so you have to be in the neighborhood. A friend of mine came to this church, I'm kind of looking for them, and they're not here, I don't know. And, you know. So I mean, it's amazing how you can kind of pick them out. And sometimes you speak to them, and they, oh, well, that's okay. They don't even want to talk to you. They, they withdraw. And you see there is that Matthew 9, Jesus moves among the crowds and his compassion on them. Harassed and helpless, they're sheep without a shepherd. And so you move towards them. Chapter next, 9. Chapter 9. Thoughtful conversations. 
It's very nice. It's, this is uh, one of the few books that I'm aware of that gives you some actual verbatim scripts, so to speak, and some models. I just really appreciate how, uh, how helpful this can be. Any, anything just really hits you on that one? If you can cite the page number, that helps the rest of us know what you might be referring to, if possible. <clears throat> page 82, what I saw in that now what, a bland response gives us very little direction. I guess this is kind of an apology, but I think I give very bland responses <laughs> to people. Um, <laughs> so really trying to also think about being able to disclose enough, do you know? Yeah. Yeah. How's your job? That's going okay. Yeah. How are the kids? Oh, they're fine. And right below that, it says listen for signs of life. I think that's a key point. To, if we ask about the holidays, you know, the person may have had a death around the holidays yeah. the year before. Yeah, so that not that may not be a really good. Just be sensitive to that. It may not be a really good question to ask. Notice the power of an emphasis. I like on page eighty-three. The difference. Uh, it's about seven lines from the bottom of the page where he has that little thing that says, "And how are you?" It really does make a difference. Not how are you, but so how are you? And, uh, and of course, the top of 83, how are you really? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't do that to a stranger, but I would do that to a friend. All right, go quicker. Chapter 10. Okay, go ahead. Good. Now, do we presume that they shared something with you one-on-one you, prior? You know, this, you know the general situation. That okay. And, and they know that you know the general situation, so it's like it's known there's been a miscarriage or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I, I think it's always fair and safe to always start with, how, you know, how are you doing? How are things going today in your life? Without referencing that. And see how they respond. And if they, if they don't give any, if they don't seem like they want to share anything, the one risk question would be, you know, I, I know you struggled with this. Uh, is there a way that I can pray for you today? Or how, how are you handling all this? And maybe you just begin by saying, I heard, I heard about the, the miscarriage. I, I, I have prayed for you. 
and we'd love to talk about that if I can be of any help to you. Those are always a little risky, but I think it's worth the risk in the body of Christ. I I think people usually will appreciate it, and you know, if they pull back, then I think at that point I'm going further. But I think there's a, there's an initial entry you can make there. I think you should. Now, if you've had a previous conversation about it, then you simply say, uh, how are things going since we talked before? Uh, I was just concerned on how things are after we talked last week. Uh, chapter 10. Learning to affirm the good. I may have mentioned this last week, this uh, counseling that I worked with and um, had a second session with her. My co-counselor just did this so beautifully. And just affirmed things about her. It's, 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 this is a, a recent college grad who doesn't have a clear direction in life. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> okay. And, uh, <laughs> and so there's, uh, there's some, there's some like, depression, despair, sadness, certainly. And, um, yeah, I could see that. She was talking about, you know, should I go on meds? Well, she just lost a job, or she wanted a job and she didn't get it, and now she's depressed. And I, I said, you know, if you're really suffering bad, talk to your physician. But right now, you've got so much circumstantial stuff going on. I don't think this is primarily a, a medication discussion for us here. I think you really need to work through, let us work with you, and that kind of thing. But learning to affirm. Okay, number of page, chapter 11. On page 87. Where he says, the first Corinthians 1 4, and we give thanks to God for you because of the grace of God. And then he says, that's how he begins every one of his letters. And and it, it, just, it just struck me that, that the Corinthians church was really messed up. As our church was really messed up. <laughs> and and we, need, we need that kind of encouragement to start with before we deal with our messes. And I, think that, I think that's a good example. I never really realized that every letter we start with. Yeah, there, there might be. I forget. There might be an exception in Galatians, but uh, but yeah, just about. I mean, it, it's fair to say it that way. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, what does that look like with one another? You know, you know how much you have appreciated a person who's affirmed you. It's just one of those things. Here's the golden rule: do to others. And, yeah, I I appreciate you bringing that one up because I was just thinking as. As you were talking, I don't think I start every counseling session. Not that you have to, but I don't think I start a lot of my uh, friendship discussions or more formal counseling with this kind of emphasis. I want to think about this more. 
Chapter 10. Oh, yeah, from the medical treatment again, I just want to patient this week to follow up with some surgery. And, um, it's just amazing if you hear some things that weren't quite right, but you know, you start off with this kind of good that looks. Things are just progressing well, and you didn't have any problems at all, and we can't really show that with this or her or your kid. Chapter 11. Now on the top of 98, he beautifully illustrates something that I've cautioned you not to do. I think I used the phrase, you're hijacking the story when someone tells tells you their story and you immediately jump in with our story. We often talk way too much when we're doing counseling. So he calls it matching. That's a nicer way maybe than saying hijacking. We always talk, don't we? We try to talk their story. <laughs> I think he addresses the thing about it could be worse, you know. Yeah. 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 Maybe even more of it will be. I do feel pretty bad. I think it's, that's a, he said it's a bad way to go. I think it is true. Yeah. yeah. I look at it as, I don't look at it just in counseling, but when you're going and talking to people at church, you know, there's a, I think there should be a humbleness about I'm there to listen to you, not about me to tell you to one up you. Right. It's not a competition. So it was a great reminder because I often find myself going into that. And let's and let's give people the benefit of the doubt that perhaps they mean well. They're trying to connect, but even if you mean well and you're not coming from a self-centeredness, you it, it's just probably not wise. We just need to learn to discipline ourselves and, and listen. Isn't, isn't there a time, though, I, I appreciate if I come to someone with a, a problem I'm struggling with, and they go, you know, yeah, I've, I've struggled with that too, that mm-hmm. kind of commiserating. That I, yeah, I, let, me, let me suggest a way to do that. I, I think that when a person begins to share, particularly if it's a suffering, it's a little different if it's a joy, but if it, particularly some kind of suffering, 
Can you feel like you have something that is um, similar in your experience? I, I think it's fair to let the person share their story, not interrupt, just listen, a few leading questions, guide them. And to be able to say something like, you know, there, there was a point where I had something similar to happen in my life, which maybe we could talk about that sometime. In other words, I'll throw out the teaser. If they want to talk about it, then I'll feel a lot freer. But I don't know that they necessarily want to hear my story yet, or ever, for that matter. And so maybe the best thing is just to kind of say, you know, I, I had a similar struggle like that. Maybe we can talk about that uh, sometime. Um, but, but tell me more. Tell me more. So throw that in there. Now, after at a certain point, you might say, yeah, I mentioned to you, I think, last time we talked, I'd gone through something. I think it would be really helpful if I could share that with you. I think it might help you. But be sure that it would be helpful. And, and know that they might they want that, or at least you think they might want that. So I don't want to avoid the commiserating component. It's, it's powerful. And, and Paul does that in, in 2 Corinthians 1, in the sense where he talks about his own struggles. And, and uh, it's a little reversed, I guess, but he... He talks about his own struggles so that the people can be encouraged. So you have a, uh, a similar situation where God has helped you. Yes, we want to be able to use that at the right time in the right way. I have a question. Is there a difference between men and women in how they talk to one another with regards to commiseration, with regards to what they're comfortable with sharing? Because, you know, you say that, and I, to me... I see that the women and they're they're going at it back and forth, back and forth, and to me that seems very natural. And I, I just for, so I wonder if there's if you if this has ever been approached from a, from men and women. Ed Mayall Welch writing this, yeah. Uh, ladies, when uh, as as he observes, and I would say I've observed something similar. There seems to be kind of mutual commiseration on things that don't seem to us to be offensive or hijacking or matching stories. But tell me, have you felt that your story has been hijacked or someone is kind of doing a one-up on you? Have you felt that? All right. So maybe you mask it well. Maybe we who kind of overhear that are thinking, like you just said, hey, this is cool what's going on. But maybe it's not as cool. Speak into this. It's just nice to know that someone else has gone gone through what you've gone what you're going through, and that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this. Oh, oh, other people struggle with this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know. The fellowship of suffering. <laughs> yeah, but it depends how far they go with it, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it comes to it. It's like acknowledge it and then right. get it back to the other. Don't person. take the show. Yeah. yeah. A guy, a guy just told. Of course, it was the guy telling me about his wife who's had an abortion. He told me this privately, and I said to him. Trust me, there's others in our church who've been down that path. And he said, oh, thank you for telling me that. My wife will really find that helpful. And my wife, his wife will end up, is going to be talking to my wife. And my wife will disclose that at that point. Now, my wife hasn't had that, but others that we have freedom to bring in have had abortions. And that becomes a very powerful thing. Another, oh, please. I think it depends on the person that's doing the sharing of the suffering. 
I think it depends on where they are in the suffering. If it's fresh and raw and it just happened today or yesterday, I think that's different from if they've struggled for a while and then they're sharing, they might be a little bit more receptive okay. to hear somebody Probably else share. Because there was there was an occasion when I shared a similar suffering with somebody and they were and I, I did that because they were at a point where they were like, what is God teaching me okay. in this? And I felt free to share because she was so open to, she was humble and she was open to, there were so many things happening in her life. She was like, what is God doing in this? Mm-hmm. And she was really asking that, it was a deep yeah. question that she was asking. Mm-hmm. And so I shared, and I shared very succinctly mm-hmm. and I shared when I was in a waiting room in a medical office and somebody asked me a question and I said I'm here to get my face strengthened that's the only reason I'm sitting here in this office is to get my face strengthened so um, I think that it was helpful but it depends on where the other person is in their walk of suffering that's helpful Okay, one more comment on that, and then chapter 12, because I want to get a break. I can cover these last couple chapters before the break, but please, go ahead. The only thing I was thinking is it's too easy to get stuck in the commiseration. You have to commiserate and read your Okay. You know, like yeah. I think of the Psalms and how yeah. David would yeah. pour out, you know, and then, but I have hope because of this, and that's where I think it's real easy to get stuck in the emotional commiseration. Okay. So we want to move, make sure that, that the sharing of a, a us commiserating has a purpose along the path. It's not the end goal. Definitely not. Okay. Uh, someone who hasn't spoken gets first opportunity on a comment on page, on chapter 12. And then one person who has spoken has opportunity now to comment on chapter 12. And then we'll do the same thing in chapter 13 and 14 here. Have compassion. Some things not to say. Now, my comment on 105 is, what is God teaching me through this? I think I'm, I'm going to probably go a little, I'm going to give a little more freedom to use that question than Welch apparently does. I don't want to do it initially. I don't want to do it immediately. I've had different experiences than maybe... Dr. Welch has had with that. I have not found it as problematic as apparently he has. And I have ha- found it very helpful to people when I ask those kinds of questions. But again, not in the immediate heat of the situation. And not if they don't have a heart that's geared toward God. It can be problematic if they are opposed to God. They're struggling with God. They have anger against God then to see what is God up to is not going to work. But if, if they have a fundamental faith in God and we're not in the heat of the moment, we're able to kind of step back now and, and begin to process this, what is it that God may be up to here? Uh, I'd also agree with him, or at least change the language, not what is God teaching you, is I want to be much more tentative. What might God be trying to show you through this? Because I don't want to be declarative uh, the person's name is not written in the Bible. I know what God was doing in Job's life. 
I don't know what he's doing in my friend's life. This, my friend isn't written in the text. Okay, but I can at least get some themes there going. Okay, someone else talked? Chapter 12? Please. Page 103, one thing that was very convicting to me was just the compassion remembers. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes you'll become aware of something and then you know, I'll get caught up in my own world during the week and not see the person the next Sunday and then you know, a month goes by and then it's, you might remember it, but it's been so long I'm kind of embarrassed to bring it up now. But just you know, being intentional about following up with you don't know how timely your comment is for me personally. And I did remember, and I, I think I will do it tonight. I've got a busy, I'm busy all day today. I go from here to another uh, teaching over at Open Door, special situation we're dealing with. And um, we're training going on. How many years ago now? My, my, my niece died on this date three or four years ago. She was in her mid-30s. Cancer. A young 30s, actually. She's 34, I think. Um, so I'm going to call my sister tonight. I'm not real close to my sister. So it's a, uh, I will definitely call her tonight. I'm going to have to move forward here, folks, time-wise. Chapter uh, 13. Someone hasn't spoken? Do you have a comment? Something really hit you? If you're sure you can get away with that, it won't be a problem. Just say, let's pray now. If you're not sure, say, may I, may I pray for you right this moment? Now, they're still probably never going to say no to you, but at least you're showing you, you're trying to be somewhat sensitive. And if it's private, that's easy. If it's in the welcome area outside or in the service afterwards, just, uh, you know, we're just going there. I just pray for you. So get out of the traffic for a little bit, get some privacy for that prayer. And if you don't orally pray right then, how about sending an email prayer to your friend? Enjoyed our conversation today. Was thinking about you afterwards. And then what I've done, I'm thinking about you afterwards, period. Next line, Father, help my friend. And write a sentence prayer. I'm going to, time-wise, I'm sorry. It was just another Somebody could take, I've had somebody take a picture of their prayer journal, too, and just send that out and text it to me. Wow. Oh, okay. That's good. That's good. Yes. Yeah. Um, let's see. We were at 13, right? 14. For me, it was the one chapter where I have minor disagreements with the author. Uh, I might too, by the way. The disagreement that I had is is uh, uh, Gethsemane as a garden, because if you if you look at the very last verse, which he quotes right in the middle, page one one twenty six, it says, "The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak." And and I guess this whole chapter to me was talking about. Certainly, we need to be aware of both Satan and the world's influence on us. 
But scripture over and over comments that our own flesh is what gets dragged away. So, so we have to we have to be really concentrating in terms of our flesh, and not really as fearful of the devil making me do something, because the devil never makes you do anything. It's your flesh's response to the temptations of the world and the devil uh, that that makes you quote, do something. Uh, so, so I guess I, I guess in terms of I realize the next chapter. He's going to be talking about sin and that sin nature, um, but but I, I think it is too easy for us if we jump into a discussion with someone over over the way the world has influenced you here or the way yeah. the devil has influenced you here. We're not really dealing with the sin nature itself, and I think that that's far more critical uh, for people to deal with than than to worry about. You know the the out the external influences, so to say. I'm gonna I'm gonna punt the rest of the discussion on anything related to Satan. I think to let your church leaders deal with that. The comment that I was going to make was that I I'm not sure about the four garden metaphor motif as a Bible reader. I'm not sure that's anything that God intended a four garden. Right. But um, there are some things there. My, my only comment about Satan is let's make sure that we understand, I think as, as, as you said, that major enemy in terms of walking with Christ is going to be our flesh. There are influences, temptations. I put Satan in the heat box and, and up, up, up here. And beyond that, let's take a break now. Come on back. And... Now, can you like work at the 10-minute thing so we can get going in 10? That would be really good. All right, we want to now talk about how can you take everything we've been talking about for four and a half weeks and try to apply it in some daily situations in your life. And we'll look at some specific situations. And a little bit maps on to what Welch did in about chapter 12 and 13 there. So let me kind of jump right into this. I want to start with some biblical passages again. We've talked about one or two of these, but I want to hit these from a slightly different angle now. And that is a vision of what a church can and I believe should be. So let's go over to Ephesians 4. It's familiar to many of you, I suspect. Ephesians 4. Eleven through sixteen. I'll pause to let you read that. Let me comment on the passage. Verse 11, we have these people who are gifts not just spiritual gifts, but here gifted people who are the gifts of the risen Christ. And ending there with the pastors and teachers whose role in verse 12 would be to equip, equip the people then to minister. Verse 12 talks about ministry. Works of service, verse 12. If you jump down to verse 16 for a moment, the whole body grows 
and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we have the pastors and teachers equipping the body to do ministry. The result, if you were to look at all these verses, but particularly now, the end of 12, the body of Christ will be built up, and right on through to the end of 16, you'll see that maturity is a mega theme, and but unity also is part of that. Until we all reach unity, verse 13. And so maturity and unity is what Paul is after. And the way that's going to happen then is as the pastors and teachers equip the people and as the people do ministry. Now, what specific ministry is pictured here in the passage? We have general language in verse 16. Each part does its work, grows and builds itself up in love. But there's one specific activity, it seems to me, that is given here. Not a metaphor, a specific action. And it's verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. In the original text, there's actually not the verb speaking because the original verb would be um, a participle, that's the I-N-G word, speaking, thing. But it's, it's actually truthing. Now, we don't have such a verb in English. And so the English translations, I think rightly, and pretty much they all tend to agree, insert the idea of speaking the truth. So, speaking this truth in love, in, this, in the setting of love. Did, did I mention the hairdresser illustration to you all? Okay. All right, so let me tell you what this passage, well, let's, let, let's do it this way. All of us understand something of the idea of speaking the truth in love, right? Something like that. So, ladies, a friend of yours calls you on the phone and uh, has just got a new outfit and a new hairstyle on the hairdresser. And she wants to show you her new hair and her new clothes. So she calls you and, can I stop by your house, your apartment, whatever? And she stops by. And you open the door, and now you have a major dilemma. Because <laughs> you think it's hideous. However, being a good Christian, Christ Covenant Church member, you want to speak the truth. You can't lie. But you need to do it in love. And so, that's your dilemma. By the way, how do you resolve that? Ladies? We all have our preferences. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> I write these challenges. <laughs> You're kind of in a no-win, right? <laughs> yeah. I like the first two a little better than uh, <laughs> Here's what I want to say about this. All that might be some wise approaches that you guys gave. It's got nothing to do with this passage. 
only slightly better is this next one. You're in a care group, small group, and let's say it's the guys this time, and one of the men in the group has discontinued attending the group and even the church. And you're even hearing some rumors about some pretty serious stuff he's involved with. And so you as caring men say, hey, what are we going to do about Joe? Joe's kind of just falling away, it seems. Well, one of us needs to go talk to Joe. Okay, who's going to do it? Well, I don't know Joe that well. How about you? Okay, I'm willing. But uh, here's, I'm willing if one thing. You pray for me that I'll be able to speak the truth in love to Joe. Now, I want to suggest to you that's not what this passage is about. We use this passage all the time, and a lot of people use it for this sense of how do you say a confrontive thing, a, a godly thing? I want to try to rescue. I want to confront Joe because of Jesus. I admonish him. But I've got to do it with kindness. What we do when we have that mindset is we're pitting truth versus love. Now, let me back you up a little bit. What do you expect the word truth to mean in the book of Ephesians? What's another word for the truth? God's word, right? The gospel would be another way this is put. If you do a word study, uh, it's, it's the word is found in or it's it's, it's, uh, cognates are called uh, similar words uh, about six times. And virtually all but one or one of those, or maybe two. It has to do with the truth of God, God's truth. There's nothing in this passage that suggests a confrontational tone. Now, it would be different if I heard the people of God saying this, oh, so-and-so just, just lost their son. Would you pray for me that I can learn to speak the truth in love? You never use that. You don't think that way. You only think of the phrase truth in love when you're thinking of something that's got an admonition to it, some kind of confrontation. We don't use it for comfort, which ought to be a signal. There's nothing in the context that suggests this. Don't pit truth versus love. Now, why do I bring this out? Because there's a good rule in Bible interpretation that whenever you misuse a verse of Scripture, and I think that's a misuse of the Bible... Whenever you misuse a verse of Scripture, you commit not one, but two errors. The first error would be what? Well, either, I'm putting an order for you. But what are the errors you're committing? Right, you make the passage say something it doesn't say. And I would suggest to you that's not what this passage says. Now, we'll get to application of the passage in a moment. But you also then don't let it say what it does say. Now, let me tell you what it does say. Christ's covenant church, open-door church, Bible-believing, Christ-centered church, hear this. This is the vision of a body of people speaking Jesus to each other. Would that include admonition? Well, yeah, it's going to be in the case of Joe who's abandoned. But don't at all pit truth versus love. This is what you bring to each other. I want to speak Jesus. I want to speak words of encouragement and admonition. Whatever is the need of the moment. See the difference? Now, if you take that interpretation, what I'm saying, now just reread and say, oh, this is beautiful. 
This is the vision of the body of Christ. What happens when the body of Christ learns to talk to each other with Christ-centered truths? Maturity and unity. People working together. Will it affect your committees? See, sometimes when people talk about every member ministry, that's a phrase that has come from this passage. We, we think of every member ministry, of every member should be on a team, on a committee, everyone should be serving in a task. And I happen to believe that. I, I believe that. No, there's exceptions and seeds of life where you can't serve and you've got you know, 14 little ones to care for. I mean, okay, there's all sorts of reasons. But for the most part, all of us should have tasks and do things. Yes, I get all that. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's an outgrowth of when the scripture is flowing conversationally with each other unto comfort or unto uh, confrontation, whichever might be needed. So there's a vision for the church. Okay, quickly, a couple questions, comments? It seems to me like it sounds better if you say speak the love in truth. I'm sorry? Speak the love in truth is what what I'm hearing you saying. We're not talking about truth and that's what I'm going to take you with what's no. What you need to hear, mm-hmm. uh, but more like a true. Tr- truths of God's word brought because I love and in the atmosphere of the church, which is a place where, where God's love reigns and rules. There's also, though, a very subtle temptation here that we have to be wary of, and that is, is that you can you can speak the truth in love. But that doesn't guarantee the response of the individual that you're speaking it to. And consequently, as members of the church, and we see someone, you know, leave the church or whatever in a huff, let's let's just say it that way. Uh, You know, we look at that and and we may automatically, automatically in our minds say, we must have failed somewhere. You know, you know somebody somebody screwed this up, like like you're talking about. You know, somebody's decided. You know, they they go straight with the mm-hmm. truth and not and not do it in love, and that's why this person's leaving and up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may not be the situation at all. No, that's true. And and let me let me say that that illustration, that dynamic, is something that would involve a lot more discussion of other truths. I want to bring in at this point. I'm thinking just merely of our one another conversations that we tend to say that this passage is only kind of when you have to do the admonitory hard stuff. Um, okay, I have to move forward. It's okay? I, I, I just, I got my on our clock and there's a lot more I want to make sure we hit. That's very practical here. So the specific ministry here, and I've added the concept of applying, in other words, helping a person not just understand a truth from God's word that helps them, but then making application to their life. That's my vision of the church. The next two passages, I'll just point out, and so you see something here. Paul in 128 and in 316 of Colossians, Paul says, my ministry is admonishing and teaching. In chapter 316, Paul says, your ministry should be teaching and admonishing. And I'll make it real real visible for you there with some underlines. Notice that this is Paul's ministry, but it's also our ministry. Hebrews 3.12, 
through 14. I'm going to skip. You have that in your notes. There's warnings here to professing Christians. The stakes are high. The answer, encourage uh, one another, OA, abbreviated, one another daily. Chapter 10, God's saving grace for us is the context that precedes this. The call to meet together, great. We all believe in regular church attendance, but it's never only church attendance, it's church attendance with a purpose and intentionality. And there are those, I'm afraid, I think that I probably had that at one point in my life, even as a young man, thinking that as long as people came regularly to the church, engaged in worship, heard God's word, and were at least polite to each other on the way out the door, that that's sufficient for Christian growth. And I'm convinced the scripture doesn't say that, that we need much more than merely the corporate worship. And so, it's one thing to say you've got to be at church, another thing to say when you're at church, or whatever you're calling church, because small group life for me is, is, is church life, that we have a motivation intention to encourage each other. Now, one other passage. This is my favorite small group passage. If you're a small group leader, or a small group member, which I trust many, if not all of you are, then this is, a, this is my favorite passage about small group life. It's in Malachi. Malachi 3. We'll just read 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Now, look at the text with me here. And I'm going to ask... And for the sake of our time today, I'm going to answer myself, but I'll involve you at one key point. Who are these people? You can answer it to yourself. Verse 16 tells us these people are those who feared the Lord. God-fearers. Was this the entire nation of Israel? that heard the prophet that day? Apparently not. Because when you have phraseology that says, those who feared the Lord, it would be a subset. I.e., a smaller group. I.e., a small group. A people who have a very intentional desire to fear the Lord and do what the rest of the passage says. What were these people in verse 16 doing? Well, it says they talked. And and you'll notice, I'll jump the gun for just a moment, the result of this talking was that a scroll of remembrance was written in this presence concerning those who feared the Lord. And if you go on into 17 and 18 you would see that there are some very special promises given to these people who feared the Lord and they talked. And they talked. Now, we all know that there is a great blessing that comes when we talk to the Lord in prayer. Right? God promises to hear the prayers of His people. 
But that's not what's going on in this passage, is it? Are these people praying? We'd like to think they're praying, but that's not what the text talks about. What were they doing? They're talking with each other. What resulted? This blessing from God. The Lord listened and heard. Now, I believe the Lord listens and hears, in one sense of the word, to everyone. He hears the wicked, the murmurs of the ungodly. But there's a kind of listening, (coughs) a kind of hearing, that in this case uh, is that of blessing. And so what I want to say is there's a kind of talking with each other that invites a blessing from God. If small group life isn't popping up in your head, you're not hearing me well today, and I'm not making the obvious application. Here's small group life pictured for you. People of God belonging to Christ who want to grow, who want to fear the Lord and live out His Word, are getting together. Are they praying, talking to God? Yes. You can go elsewhere and see that would be a wise practice for a small group. But they're talking to each other. And there's a kind of talking with each other that brings the ear of God a blessing upon you. Now, what do they talk about? Look at verse 16 and tell me what it is that was the subject of their conversation in verse 16. You have to stick to verse 16, though. Okay. They, there are people who feared the Lord, and they talked with each other. But what did they talk about? What is the presupposition that you think is here? Someone said there's a presupposition. Okay. The text doesn't tell us what they talked about. Except, so that's a bit of a trick question. I said I'd involve you, but I guess in one sense I didn't involve you so much. The verse, verse 16 becomes important for us. Now, back up to Malachi 1 for a moment. Malachi 1, 1. 1, 1 is the heading. From 1, chapter 1, verse 2, 1, 2, all the way through 3.15, you have the bulk of the book. And it's, it's a large section here. What you have is dialogue between God and his people through the prophet. The prophet represents God. The prophet then voices the people. So if you were to take a red and blue highlighter, or you had it on a computer and you did red or blue font, and you put red for the words of God and blue for the words of the people, you would find this is entirely red and blue all the way through, point-counterpoint, debate, back and forth. And you find there's about seven themes, or six, six or seven themes there that are addressed. But there's no action at all in the whole book until we come to our text. And so, the assumption that I think we can make is that what these God-fearing people talked about were the things of chapter 1, 2, through 3.15. Then they talked after this dialogue is going on. If I said, for example, today that 
this evening, all the uh, Duke football fans will get together and talk. What do you think we could assume they would talk about? Okay. <coughs> we can assume that by me calling them Duke football fans that get together to talk, they're going to talk about Duke football. So your answers are all right. They're going to talk about the fear of the Lord. But I want you to specifically see how the context tells us what it is. So, I don't know. I'm going to speculate here. Chapter 1. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? So they're questioning and doubting God's love. Could it be that hearing this message, there's Jacob and, and Levi here, pronounced it more, we make up a name, okay? Pronounced with a more Hebrew way. You told me that, right? So, not Levi, but Levi, uh, are, are talking. And Jacob says to Levi, oh, man. Hey, pray for me, my friend. I'm one of those people who's doubted God's love. And then, then we come over to chapter 1, verse 6 and following, and and. And, and, and Sarah says to uh, uh, Abigail, we offered a sacrifice last week, and it wasn't an unblemished one. Malachi the prophet has just nailed me. Pray for me, help me. And then another person on into chapter 2 hears this thing about divorce and says, pray for me, I've been struggling with thoughts about another woman. You get the picture? They're, they're hearing God's word and they're talking with each other. I don't think they're just talking about what Hebrew verbs mean. I, I think there's going to be some life application. There's my vision for you all in your small group life. Alright, now, moving forward. Let's talk about the informal one-on-one. The 10-minute personal ministry approach and maybe five or seven minutes. Here you are after the worship service ends, and you're milling around and talking. Maybe it's someone you already know. Maybe it's someone you don't know very well. Joe, how are you? And of course, for Joe, that's probably a greeting. So he says, fine. But then you say, well, how's, how's your week going? Or... You know, I'm a little better. How are you really doing this week? Well, he says some kind of some type of situational heat. My my job is really a lot of pressures going on. Um, I haven't been feeling that well. Kids are sick. You talk to Mary. You know, my husband's out of town. Husband's away. You name it. The things that people share with you beyond fine and I'm okay. What is a small area they open up to you? So there's some kind of situational heat. So, you know, my back is sore. For the other examples. A compassionate response. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, My in-laws are coming in this weekend. That will... uh, uh, that, no, I need that up. That's not my case. 
That could be a little fear-inducing, right? So. And saying, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've been tough. <laughs> that'll, that'll, that'll be good for you. What's God going to do? You know, uh, um, yeah. So, so there's, there's an initial compassionate response to heat. Sorry to hear that. Or that must be hard. Sounds like that's a struggle. And then uh, ask further, caringly. You know, not, not a lot of questions, but just a few clarifying questions. But the turning point in the conversation then comes to this. Hmm, it's hard. Sounds tough. How, how are you handling that? And just, you can hear my inflection. How, how are you handling that? Now it, it, it can be how can I how can I pray for you? That's sort of a ministry option, but but maybe you even introduced that earlier. Wow, that sounds tough. How, how can I pray for you? And then you have the ministry options available to you. You can right then pray. Wow, that's hard. Could, can, I just, can I just pray for you here for a moment? Now, this, I actually developed this stuff from uh, one of my other mentors, David Pallison. That's why I'm so excited about this that just came out from at Welch. Um, but Welch is doing some of the same things here. So maybe it's right then. Can I just pray for you? Or maybe it's a commitment. Uh, I, I, will, I will pray for you this afternoon. But like I still would opt towards, let's pray right now. Or maybe that's a point of saying, you know, this is really, uh, that, that sounds hard. I would love to chat with you. Can we chat further? Maybe even right now. Can we just um, talk a little bit about that? Or can I call you this afternoon? Or can we get together this week and make that offer? Maybe at that point you will share biblical truth. You may or may not open up your Bible. You might choose to just simply voice the truth from, the, from God's Word. This is where you know some truths. You can say them or paraphrase them. I'm really sorry to hear that. I, I I know you already know this, but God promises to be with you this week. And God, I just want to pray for you. Second Timothy four seventeen says, "The Lord stood by my side and gave me strength." So you do something like that, and maybe it'll lead to a further conversation. Uh, maybe it won't, but then you do want to have some kind of follow up. Um, some kind of follow up. And especially if you've uh, made any promises. Hey, I'll send you an article, or I'll email you tonight, or I'll call you about getting together. So you really need to follow up on those particularly there. But you see the person the next week, and you haven't had any follow-up. Other than maybe send an email or a text or something like that. And you see him again, and you call them. uh, So how how are things going? How How did your week go? How'd that go with your father's surgery or whatever the situation is. Now, I submit to you, you can do this kind of thing in five to seven, ten minutes. There are these touches. They might lead to, next time might be eight to ten to fifteen minutes. It could mean uh, a breakfast or a coffee time together. Makes sense. What are are the key takeaways, I think? It, It is being able to ask, how are you doing? 
So it's listening for heat, shifting towards how are you handling that, and then how can I help you? I can help you by praying with you or praying for you later, maybe a verse or a booklet or an article. And you're going to keep doing that with that person and do it with more people. So what would Christ's covenant look like? What would your what would your small group look like if those conversations were happening before you left the house and you'd have another ten or fifteen minutes and maybe you're talking over here and you're in the kitchen and you're out in this part of the living room and you're over in this part. I don't know how your small groups work, but that kind of thing. Let me give you a similar you'll see a lot of similarities with group prayer times. This may be where you actually have a formal prayer service or a way you have prayer times that are built into your small group life. What's that look like? Well, we can talk about first listening to people's prayer requests. Drawing out the heart and the behavioral concerns. So, how can we pray for each other this week? Well, my dad is going to have surgery next week. Um, now, sad wouldn't be the word at this one, but it could be something along the lines of, um, wow, that's, uh, that's, that sounds tough. That sounds like a, a major operation he's going to have. Now, I want to get some more details. So when I leave that kind of setting and someone in a small group says, you know, my dad has heart surgery, unless he's in the church and everyone knows who he is, I might say, well, I'm sorry to hear that. How old's your dad? Where's he live? How would you describe his relationship to the Lord right now? I like that better than is he a Christian or not. You know, it's sure. Because, first of all, I'd rather have the open-ended question, right? Not, is he a Christian? That's yes or no, that's closed. How would you describe the relationship with the Lord? And I might learn something about my small group member, by the way, at this point as well. Um, well, he goes to church. Okay, well, I'm thinking my small group member either doesn't know the dad that well, or maybe has a view of Christianity that's centered on church going. Um, what I'm listening for is, well, he, he loves the Lord, or he's not a Christian, he's not following the Lord, whatever. So, get some more details, when is the surgery? And things like that. Now, that person is sharing this as a prayer request because they're going to want me to pray for dad's surgery for it to be successful. And we will definitely want to do that. But the second question at that point is, how, how are you handling all this? How are you, how, how are you, how's this affecting you? You see, that's a lot different than just praying for the surgery. Now, the person at that point might say, well, I'm, I'm doing okay, fine. But I'm really worried about my dad. And so it might deflect back to that. And that's fine. I'm not going to push that in a small group setting. Maybe afterwards I might come up and say, so how, how are you handling this? And kind of repeat that question I asked in the group with the hope that maybe it will open up a little more after the group ends. But you see what we're doing. We're going from the heat, my dad's going to have surgery, into how I'm handling that. Now, the person might say, I'm fine. 
If you think they're fine, you have reason to think they're fine, I would typically say, well, good. We'll uh, make sure we pray. And then when I pray, I'm still going to pray for the person, not just for the dad. But if I'm not sure, and they say, oh, I'm fine, I might say something like, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I know that when I have had similar situations, or I know others who've had similar situations, it's really nice if you're a small group, you know, like, like Janice a year ago. I know that sometimes we can be tempted. Notice how tentative I'm trying to be. Sometimes we can be tempted to be a bit fearful. Mary, does that fit? And again, I, I need not want to press Mary, but if Mary's a little bit open, I'll take a little risk. Mary, how about you? You feel a little fearful on that. Well, yes, you're right. I do feel a little fearful. Well, I want to pray for you. Father, be with Mary's dad, be with the surgery, be with the medical team. I don't just pray for doctors, by the way. I'm sensitive to nurses and anesthesiologists and many other people that make up a successful thing. So for the whole medical team, I might mention doctors, nurses, those will be providing care for Mary's dad here today. Lord, we would pray that you would bring him through that successfully and get skill and and heal him through this process. But Father, I also want to pray today for my sister Mary, that you help her to be able to trust her dad into your hands and help her as she fights against the fears that all of us would have in this kind of situation. So in my prayer, I'm normalizing Like, yeah, it's okay to admit your fears about that. Maybe it's, how can we pray for you? And they say, well, my in-laws are coming, right? We talked about that. And, uh, oh, for me, I won't say that's sad. I will say that's good. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, What's that like for you? Well, if it's a prayer request, it might be, at that point, they're going to say, well, there's always a lot of pressure, and this is particularly the particularly if it's the woman talking at this point, I, I feel sometimes criticized by my mother-in-law. I don't ask for a show of hands, but uh, you, you know that the number one tension in in-laws, a married couple of in-law, is not the husband and the mother-in-law. You know that, right? All the jokes, the proverbial mother-in-law jokes, are the husband about his mother-in-law, his wife's mother that relationship is actually usually one of the better of the of the, the cross relationships going on there. It's usually the wife and the mother-in-law. You can amen if you want to, unless your spouse will get ticked at you if you amen right now. Ladies, no, no amens. It's true. Okay, we got a list of husbands willing to say, man's willing to say it's true. Yeah. So. Well, well where, where do they live? Where do they come in? How long are they staying? Um, how can we pray for you about that? Because it's been brought up as a prayer request. And so what am I going to pray? I'm going to pray. Let's say the, the father-in-law is lazy. And he comes on the weekend and just plops on the couch. And, you know, your kids don't like that because he'll take over the TV. Or grandpa smells. 
it. Got an old man smell, right? Something like my kids. Okay, so we get some of the facts, basic. Not not a long time. I'm not probing beyond a couple questions just to get a feel for what's going on. Again, but how how are you? How do you handle that? How can we pray for you? Where where would you like the Lord? That's a good question. Where would you like the Lord to give you special help? Well, I really need to hold my tongue. Or I need to be able to help my kids make it through. And uh, I feel like I need to get my house all perfect. Because my mother-in-law can be critical. You see the way it changes the way we pray. So, Lord, give them a good weekend with in-laws, help them ride safely, blah, 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 all that stuff. And that's true. When I say blah, 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 I'm I'm not minimizing that. But I'm saying we need to also have that other component. You can model this in sharing your prayer requests. Same thing. Hey, would you guys pray for me this week? My in-laws are coming in. And when they come in, it's good to connect with them. I actually like my in-laws. But here's the problems that Laurie, my wife, and I sometimes feel. We feel that he's this way. We feel that she's this way. And would you just pray for me? Um, the back surgery, my father's going to have a heart surgery, let's say. You know, pray situational change. Let's pray that um, doctors will be with it. No. Um, well, this one doesn't quite fit, but let's back to my thing about the in-laws. So, Lord, would you help my father-in-law to not be uh, a, a lazy bum? And help me to treat him kindly. But also, help me not to judge him. Lord, help me to give, have compassion. Would you guys pray that I have compassion? Because I tend to only see his sin and not recognize that there's an underlying need for forgiveness of sin and power of the Spirit and, and grace. I'm going to cover this, albeit briefly, because I want to devote the entire week next week to common problems. So let me just say some things on this. We talked a little bit about counseling unbelievers uh, briefly, but let me give you a bit of a summary. I punted at least one of you off to this point, so I'm sorry I'm going to go quickly. The model works for unbelievers. They've got heat. They have heat that we don't have. Guilt, God's judgment to come, lack of God's help in their life, etc., but they also have all the normal needs, in-laws and back surgeries and etc. What do we do? We bring Jesus to all people in an initial way to the unbeliever, in an ongoing way. Some biblical counseling writers use a more narrow definition. So if you read Jay Adams, for example, uh, he'll say that you don't counsel an unbeliever, you you evangelize him, and then you counsel, or you pre-evangelize, or pre-counsel. To me, it's splitting hairs. I don't have time to develop that. Why? But here's what I want to say. You're bringing Jesus to anyone. Christians need Jesus in fresh and new and repeated ways. Unbelievers need Jesus in an initial way. 
because unbelievers face many problems, some of the same problems that we face, and then other problems we do not face. We also have to remember what an unbeliever lacks. There's going to be there's different ways we can say this, but let me say the two categories here. First, they, they lack God's word as their final authority. We don't have a common referent at this point. At the end of the day, you counsel the unbeliever to act a certain way. They may reject that because they don't have God as their final Lord in their life and his word. And then they lack the Spirit's power to change. So, should we counsel unbelievers? Yes. How should we counsel them? Enter, understand. And now I'll, I'll make a slight... Uh, I need to, need to clarify this a little bit now. We're going to give wise advice. An unbeliever talks to me about a marriage problem, a friend at work. I'm going to give him good advice to... Here's what would probably be good. Learn to listen to your wife more than talk. Who, who does most of the talking? Her, you. You know, just some common sense. You might need to go, go get a sitter, go spend the money, then take her on a date, etc., etc. But I also want to communicate that there's something deeper that I think will change your marriage. And if you've never shared the gospel with this person at work or your your friend. Uh, maybe someone in a homeschool co-op or whatever, here's a point to say, you know, I, I really think that Christ is the answer for you. Now, I can't take time this morning, you guys, to talk about how to evangelize. That's a whole other course, let alone uh, an hour session or two hour, two and a half hour session. In a formal counseling setting, though, I'm going to want to talk about Jesus because anyone who comes to me at least, and, and you all too because you'll be church-based who are doing this counseling and uh, people know that you're going to obviously be Christian if it's more formal counseling here in the life of the church. You're going to have the open door to talk about Jesus at that point. I want to assign homework, but, but here's a guideline. I want to assign something that will address both their felt problems, the practical problem that they've come to talk to you about, and also to bring Jesus into the discussion. So one way that I like to do it is John chapter 1. Not, if you know John's Gospel, John chapter 1, not 1 through 18. Not 1, 1 through 1, 18. That is theologically very heavy for a non-Christian to grasp. I wouldn't start there. I would start and said with 119. Now you can tell them that what 1 1 through 118 is about is all about Jesus, but there's probably some things in there that are a little uh, harder for me to explain to you. You're not maybe going to grasp it just reading this on your own. But you can if you want. But I, what I really want to recommend you read is 19 through the end of chapter 1. And what you have there is all narrative, it's all stories of people who've come to know Jesus Christ. And what I'd encourage you to do, um, Joe, unbelieving friend of mine, I'd ask you to read 119 through 51. Just take a piece of paper, a napkin, notes on your phone, however you like to record something. Just 
jot down, for your eyes, I don't have to collect it, for your eyes, what the passage tells us about Jesus. Because I've said to you that not only would it be good for you to date your wife, uh, be a better listener, some common sense stuff that we would give to any husband to work on his marriage, but I've also said that I think Jesus can make a huge change in your life and in your marriage. So I want you to think about who this Jesus is. Now, uh, you guys, what you're going to find is there's some really great descriptors of Jesus. He is called uh, the Son of God. He's called Rabbi, King of Israel, Son of Man. But he's also, he's also called the Lamb of God. And he's called that twice in this passage. And the particular one that's going to be the, the most valuable for you is going to be 129. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now you're going to follow up with your friend Joe. And you're going to say, so Joe, how's the marriage going? Able to, able to get a date with your wife? And, you know, how's the conversation going? Are you able to be a little better listener? Well, yeah, somewhat, I'm not sure. They didn't pan out. They sort of got sick. Whatever. Okay. Yeah, Joe, sorry to hear that. Did you have a chance to look at the John's Gospel passage I encourage you to read? Yeah, I did. Okay. What did you note? Well, it's this Lamb of God thing. What's that all about, Bob? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. You got, a, got an hour? I got a sermon for you. No. Um, well, in the Old Testament, for the Israelites to be made right with God, they had to offer a sacrifice. Their sin was so serious that, that, that they deserved to die, but God accepted a sacrifice in their place. And Jesus has now become the sacrifice. And now you go ahead and share the gospel, what God has done in Christ and the Lamb of God. And Joe, as I said, it, it will change the way you and your wife function if you begin to think about this Jesus Christ. In fact, I encourage you to go on to chapter 2 this week, Joe. Or maybe that point, double back to chapter 1. Or let me explain chapter 1, 1, 1 through 18. I told you to skip it because it's a little theologically dense there. But let me explain more. You know, Jesus is God, 1, 1. And he's come to bring life and light. And that's what your marriage needs. You need forgiveness of sins. Because what you've told me about you and Mary and your relationship... Mary needs the same forgiveness as well. You guys have both hurt each other a lot. And you need, uh, you need his forgiving grace. You also need his empowering grace. So I can go ahead and move into those categories with the person. A couple more comments. Um, if he withdraws, remind him of the gospel. John... Yeah. Well, so did you get to read John? No, I, I, I didn't. Okay, well, I might wait a week with you guys. And then uh, talk to him again. Nah, I, I'm not sure this thing is for me. Well, Joe, I hope you'll reconsider that. Um, Jesus already loves you. He's already for you. He wants you. And I would encourage you not to turn away. He's for you. He wants you. He wants to help you in your life. But also, as your friends say, you know, if you, if you turn away from Christ, there's two things I need to say. I don't see a lot of light, a lasting hope for your marriage. 
you might be able to fix some things. But also, in the same gospel passage, in the same John chapter 1, you know, it takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world is what brings condemnation and destruction. There is final judgment to come. The good news, if I can take you over to chapter 3, is this God so loved the world, and now you go with John 3.16, and maybe some truths related to that. Let me see if you have a question on that, because I don't need to do anything with number 4. You guys can read that on your own the counseling-related telephone calls. That's a whole other discussion. And if you read that this week, and uh, I can ask you at the beginning of next week, any questions on the counseling-related phone calls? Because some of you, particularly ladies, receive those kinds of calls and you try to engage in some phone counseling. And I think it can be valuable, but there's some problems and some uh, counsel that I would give to you about that, embedded in that, that article that I've included. But questions you have on, well, really anything we've talked about here, relational evangelism, the prayer group thing, or the first thing, the one-on-one 10-minute conversations after small group ends or in the hallways after worship. Please. I'm just in the business, uh, and you aren't sure when you have to Very fair. What do you do if you're not sure? I take people at their word, and if they're a member of the church, I'm going to begin to walk down with the assumption that they're a believer, but I want to keep my ears open for the fact that maybe they're not. And I want to still talk about things like forgiveness, forgiving grace and enabling grace, and that's where the line between believer and unbeliever in terms of my ministry strategy, is not going to be that different. I'm bringing the same Jesus there. Some counselor, biblical counselors, I think, for in my, my opinion, overstate the need to know in session one. And so we spend the whole time trying to discern. And I would rather move forward in dealing with their felt need and a struggle and find out as I go whether maybe, maybe this is a false profession, maybe it's not the real deal. Or not. So treat a person according to their profession is what I'd say. Just keep your ears open as you go forward. Okay, let me pray for us and we'll be done for today. We thank you, Father, for opportunities to talk to non-Christians. You give it to us and uh, we're often fearful and too busy, too self-focused. So give us ears and eyes that see the needs of unbelievers. Father, I pray this week that you'd help us in our small group times and as we mingle around tomorrow morning before or after the worship service here to be people who can move toward each other and toward others in the congregation, particularly those who may uh, appear distant or lonely or struggling with something. So give us your wisdom. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for giving us a church that loves you and is committed to this kind of training. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>